Hey, we're in Revelation 15, verses 1 through 8, God's final wrath. If you would, please stand for reading of God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've given us warnings all through your word that you are coming, you are coming, you are coming, and there will be a final day of judgment on this earth. And these bold judgments are that final time, the final outpouring of your wrath on this planet. And Lord, I pray that people have ears to hear, hearts that are soft, eyes to see the things of the Spirit, and that you will speak to each one of our hearts today things that we need to hear from this teaching. May we be perceptive. May we be alert. And may we hear from the living God today. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God's final wrath. This is a prelude to the bold judgments. And as you know, the bold judgments are the worst of the worst of the worst. And that is what is coming. The theme of Revelation is this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment. And Jesus is coming to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And aren't you thrilled that there will never be another government that will be corrupt in charge. Yes, yes, yes. Because the king is coming and it will be a righteous government. Now last week we talked about God has warned, will you listen? God has warned, will you listen? And we saw two judgments. We saw the, 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 the wheat harvest and we saw the grape harvest. And these were both judgments on the unbelievers on earth. And the main thing I wanted to get out of this was that the wheat are harvested, but the true believers were sequestered safe, kept safe by God through all of these final judgments. A key point to remember is this, that God is gracious. God is merciful. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We have heard this over and over and over. And a key verse is John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath is, is, remains on him. Now, we know that word believe is the word pistio. Pistio, and it is a verb, it is an action, it's something that we do. We commit ourselves to, we put our trust in, we rely on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Remember, the five solas, sola gracia, sola fida, sola Christus, sola biblio, sola glorious to the glory of God. It is through grace, through faith, in Christ alone that we are saved. And you must believe and receive the gift of of, of eternal life to be saved. Now, God will deal with sin. We know that. God's final dealing with sin 
comes at the campaign of Armageddon. And if you remember, the campaign of Armageddon is on the plains of Megiddo. And Napoleon said, this was the, if, if you're standing on the mountains, you actually, when you go to Israel, you're standing right over here, you can see this very sight. And Napoleon said that all the armies of the world could be mustered here for the final attack. And what he's actually doing, the Antichrist, is he's putting his armies here in preparation to attack Jerusalem because there are still Jews who believe in Yahweh, who have not taken the mark of the beast, have been loyal to Yahweh in Jerusalem. And part of that campaign of Armageddon, well, he, he will go there and destroy those people, and they will actually die for their faith. They'll give a good account of themselves that they will die. Remember, Satan has always wanted to eliminate the Jewish people. And why does he want to do that? All through history, it's the people of God he's tried to eliminate. And he's tried to do that for two reasons. So they can't plead for him to return, and they can't recognize their sin of rejecting the Messiah. Satan will have dominion over this world systems completely for seven years in the tribulation period. The last three and a half years are the worst. Remember, the first part of the tribulation, Antichrist is just ascending to power. He isn't in full power. His full power comes at the three and a half year point when he enforces uh, worship of the Antichrist as God, sets the abomination of desolation up in the temple of God, and the thing breathes and it moves and, and the world will be mesmerized. And if you don't take the mark of the beast, you're going to be beheaded or you're going to be jailed or you're going to be chased and it'll be relentless. That is when his wrath crescendos. The last three and a half years. Satan will have dominion over the world during that time. Now, what does Jesus do at the very end of this, this reign of Antichrist? He returns and with a word with a word, puts down the Antichrist. There's a battle between Antichrist armies and Jesus coming back. And it's not one of these things where, oh, we're getting the message. Antichrist looks like he's winning and Jesus is being outmaneuvered. Oh no, that is not what happens. It's just with a word, Antichrist is, is, is dealt with. The false prophet are dealt with. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Post haste, Satan is bound. The earth dwellers are, are killed, summarily killed. Those who have sided with Satan in the Antichrist. They are dealt with. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 puts it this way, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Jesus speaks, and Antichrist is done. It's just that simple. Hebrews 10.31 tells us the truth. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This week we'll see the last phase of the wrath of God. I believe that the wrath of God starts with the seal judgments. It extends into the trumpet judgments where it gets worse, and then it crescendos in the bold judgments, the seven bold judgments, the final wrath. Now, where have we been up to this point? Just a little bit of a review. We've been in the mid-tribulation to this point, and now we're coming out of the mid-tribulation, going into the last part of the tribulation. So there's a transition here. Where the world stands at this point in this transition. And there's 10 things here that I've written down. First of all, Satan has been resurrected, has resurrected the Antichrist, and he is personally indwelling the Antichrist. That's why the Antichrist has become so powerful, that he defeats the two witnesses, that he raises Antichrist from, from the dead. He's actually, he actually killed and raises him from the dead. Antichrist, number two, is ruling the world, being celebrated as the Messiah. Remember, he's the false Messiah, but he's projecting himself as the true Messiah. 
then Satan will raise up the false prophet to lead a world of religions that worships the Antichrist. And then there's the image of the beast that they set up in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And the world is called to worship this new God, to take the mark of the beast, to declare allegiance, to worship, to worship this beast. If a person refuses, of course, they can't buy or sell anything. They're beheaded, they're chased, they're thrown in jail. It's misery for them. The ones who resist are believers in Jesus and those Jews that are still devoted to Yahweh, the true God. Jerusalem Jews then will flee to Basra. They will see the abomination of desolation. They will know this is what Daniel was talking about. Get out of town. And they know exactly where to go. And we had that picture of what Basra looked like last week. Others, others in the world are being persecuted, but especially the Jews in Jerusalem who have not submitted to Antichrist. And many are martyred and enter heaven to rest. Folks, verse 15 and 16 are God's final wrath on earth. The wrath of God is complete in verse 1. Watch this. Then I saw another sign, and great and marvelous Another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath, the thumos of God is complete. Seven angels, seven bowls of wrath. The bold judgments are the worst of the worst of the outpourings of the wrath of God. Now that's a lot to say. Because we know that in the sealed judgments, there's two billion people that are killed. We know that a whole flurry of them will be killed in the, in the trumpet judgments. And now we have the bold judgments. I don't know how many people are going to be left, but there's going to be a lot killed there also. We know that believers are going to be saved and saved by Jesus during this outpouring of these bowls of wrath. He will sequester them and save them. And again, that word wrath is thumos. And it's hard for us to picture God having this quality. But it's an outburst of wrath. It's an outburst of revenge that he's going to extract on people who have rejected his son. And that wrath will be expressed in these plagues, these bold judgments. Now, we pick up in chronological order. Remember, chapters 11 through 14, they're kind of out of order. and You've got to kind of put them in order as best you can, how these events take place. But in chapter 15, we pick up the chronology. The last trumpet judgment, the seventh trumpet judgment has been blown in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 through 19. But verse 15 is the key. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever. This is Jesus taking back planet Earth, the kingdoms of this world, from Satan. Jesus Christ is taking these up from Satan's control. Now, I want you to hear something. A lot of people believe that Satan has the deed to planet Earth or he owns planet earth, that's not true. There's a couple verses that you want to remember. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world's and those who dwell within. Psalm 83, 18, The Lord is the most high over all the earth. The earth belongs to God. Satan is a usurper, and he has temporary control for these last 6,000 or so years over the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world. John 12, 31, Jesus elucidated, made clear this. The, power, the ruler of this world will be cast out, talking about Satan. John 14, 30, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing on me. And do you remember the three temptations of Christ? In the third temptation, Satan asks, offers him all the kingdoms of the world. 
All the kings of the world. Jesus didn't say they're not yours to offer. If you will just bow down and worship me, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So these, these world kingdoms are under control of Satan right now. So we see the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. God's wrath is being poured out on earth. We see the false prophet sets up the abomination of desolation. It looks like when we were going through our study in Revelation, there was a lamenting in heaven. In chapter 5, John does not see anyone who is qualified to open the scroll. And he's, he's lamenting, he's actually weeping, and he's, he's just, just grieving. And then he's told, oh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the one that can open the scroll. And then we see that Jesus taking the scroll out of Father's hand. And this is a picture of a seven-sealed scroll. And only Jesus can take the scroll out of Father's hands. Again, seven seals. And if you remember, this, these seal judgments contain the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. The seventh seal opens up the first trumpet. The seventh trumpet opens up the bowls. It's all contained in this scroll. All these judgments are contained in this scroll. One at a time are being revealed by Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah. So what does the scroll contain? It contains the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments. And again, who is the one that is initiating these actions on earth? In Revelation 6.1, it is the Lamb who opens the seals. It is the Lamb. Now, I want you to think about something. I believe, now, this is my belief. There are a lot of people who do not believe this, and we'll get into that in just a second. But I believe that the entire tribulation period is the wrath of God. And I've been through this many times. But one of the strong points that points to this, at least in my mind, is the following. The, the, why I believe the seven years are the entire wrath of God. If you remember Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we see the, the 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. These were 70-week years. And we spent a lot of time on this. These were 490 years. So 70 times 7, 490 years are for your people. So they came out of Babylon, Babylonian captivity. God says for 490 years, we can bring this whole thing to, to completion. But what did the Jewish people fail to do? At the 483-year mark, the 69th week, they refused to believe in the Messiah. And Messiah was cut off. And we had this picture that we used on the screen, a 70 weeks prophecy from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Nagid, Messiah the Prince would come, would be 69 week years, 483 years. He would be cut off. He would die for the sins of the world. Not for himself. It wasn't, he wasn't guilty. It was for the sins of the world. God temporarily sets aside the Jewish people. They have failed in their mission to share Messiah with the rest of the world. Keep the picture there. Don't go down. This is the church age, roughly 2,000 plus years. The church age will end, I believe, with the rapture of the church. The Antichrist will be revealed. And this whole seven-week period of time is focused on the Jewish people, not the church. The church, I believe, has been extracted. The whole focus, according to Daniel, 
is the Jewish people. Antichrist will come to power during this first half of this time. This three and a half years, he ascends to power slowly. He crescendos here. His full wrath is poured out in the last part of the tribulation period. That is what the word of God says. So, with that stated, I want you to, I, I've showed you that I believe that the rapture occurs at the beginning of this tribulation period. Now, you need to know that there are people that agree with me, and there are people that disagree with me, and these are some really smart people. So, what have you learned as far as a pre-tribulation rapture? If we see the Antichrist, we immediately change our view to mid-trib or pre-wrath, okay? That's what you got to know. I am not absolutely certain on this thing, but I believe from the way that I see Scripture, this is the way that it unravels. But I could be wrong. So let's look at the different views. Andy Woods has this in his, in his, in his teaching, so I stole it from him. This is the pre-trib rapture. We're raptured at the beginning. We come back with Christ at the end, and we enter the millennial kingdom, and we will have rulership positions in this kingdom. Now, the mid-trib happens in the middle of the, of the three-and-a-half-year the three point. They are taken up, and then they come back. The post-trib, now this is the strangest of all, they come back, or Jesus comes back and takes them. They go up to heaven, and they make a U-turn and come right back down. They don't get to go to Father's house. They don't get the marriage supper of the Lamb. They miss out on all that. It's just up, down, and enter the millennium. And then the, the pre-wrath is, is actually what more people are getting into today. And they believe there's all kinds of timings for the pre-wrath. Some people believe it, most of the people that I've seen, believe it occurs very near the end, maybe weeks or months before the coming of Christ. And a lot of them associate it with, the, with these final bold judgments. So those are the four views. Which one is correct remains to be seen. Okay? So we can have a supposition, we can study, we can do everything that we can to try to make it as clear as we can for ourselves, but it still remains to be seen. What doesn't remain to be seen is the following. Why is there a tribulation period? Why is there a tribulation period? Why these seven years of misery? Well, number one, according to Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his, in his footstep of, of Messiah, says this. Number one is for a great worldwide revival. It'll be the greatest harvest of souls ever in the history of the world will happen at the, in the tribulation period. Revelation 7, 9. The 144,000 are witnesses, and they'll be so effective that there'll be a, a innumerable people saved out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's number one. Number two is to make an end of wickedness or the wicked ones. So you get rid of the wicked people and those people that follow Satan and Satan himself. And number three, we saw in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, is to break the power of the holy people, their stubbornness. And they'll take that whole seven years of misery for them to finally say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Again, let's go through this. Jesus will initiate the sealed judgments, trumpet, and bold judgments. And, and, and remember, I think that they telescope. They telescope, meaning that one follows another. There are people that, that think it recapitulates, that the sealed judgments are the judgments, and then the trumpet judgments are just restating the, tree, the, the, the sealed judgments, and the bold judgments are restating these judgments. 
I do not believe that. I think these are crescendoing. They get worse and they get worse. They get worse. I believe this is all the wrath of God. And I think that we've spent a lot of time making at least, I think, a cogent argument for that. So, the final wrath of God will be complete with the bold judgments. Now, who's going to be the ones that overcome the beast? Verses 2 through 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory, victory, nikeo over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of the name standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. This is worship, folks. They sing the song of Moses. Remember, Moses was a deliverer, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, who is the master deliverer of humanity. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. All nations will at one time bow before the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. These saints that we see are overcomers, victors. These have not taken the mark of the beast. These are men and women of steel. They have not caved to the Antichrist. Now, this sea of glass kind of intrigued me. What does all that mean? Well, I looked up some stuff. And it says this, thinking of the sea of glass. In the ancient world, a king would have an area that no subject could cross. That would be the sea of glass. That would be a, a, a forbidden zone. You could only come so close to the king and no closer on fear of death. But what we see here in this picture is that these believers are standing on this boundary. They are on the sea of glass. They are welcomed into the presence of their king. This is a king that is fully accepting his servants. And he loves these people and he says welcome and he just kind of brings them in, not like the other kings. So God, this is a tremendous honor. And remember what these people have experienced, the awfulness of the Antichrist. His killing, his murdering, his torturing, running for their lives, unable to buy or sell, seeing their children killed, their wives killed, their aunts and uncles killed, their friends killed. They have seen all of this tragedy and this trauma, and they did not cave. How in the world does anyone really do this? How do you not cave? How, do you, how are you not overcome by Satan? How did they overcome? How do we survive today? How do those people in the rest of the world, that by the way, the martyrdom in the 20th and the 21st century is greater than at any time in history, and more have died in that period of time than all through the history of the church to that time. That's how much martyrdom is going on today. How do they stand? How are these future guys going to stand? Well, we learn this in Revelation 12:11. Number one requirement to make it through this is the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean to me? That means that you're saved. The blood of Jesus Christ Remission of sins has been applied to your life. Your life. And he's the one that strengthens you. Number two is because you are saved, because you have been strengthened by your God, the word of their testimony that gives them the ability to witness to the death if need be. And number three, they did not love their lives to the death. They realize that this is temporary. 
This is temporary. This is not a, an eternal existence here. See, we get this feeling like this is going to go on forever. It's going to go on. When is this ever going to end? And it will end. It ends for everybody. And I repeated this several times for good reason. Our marching orders and how to survive are predicated on what God is telling us. The blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and we will not love our lives to the death. We'll be willing to sacrifice for our God. Now, we can't do that in our strength. Again, that comes from God. Our marching orders for how to survive the coming persecution have been given to us. And yes, I believe there is a coming persecution for the church in America. I think it's inevitable. Look what's happening around the world. We have been excluded. We've become excluded. We were excluded. Why were we excluded? Because as a nation, we were worshipers of the true God. So we've been blessed all of this time, all, this, all these hundreds of years. We've been blessed because we worship the true God. The rest of the world hasn't, and they have suffered. Now we get to join the club. Isn't that just terrific? Yeah. Think about this. As atheist Marxism rises, persecution of the true church increases. Look at China. Look at Russia. They will allow a state church, but they will not allow a church that says anything contrary to what the state demands they say. Marxism insists on loyalty to the government God. Make no mistake about that. There's no debate allowed in those countries. No contrary view is accepted. Total capitulation. Total to surrender to the will of the government God. That is what we see throughout the world. And we're praying that that does not happen in America. However, we are seeing the seeds of that planted today. It is very scary. Very scary. There's no contrary view allowed on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. You can't get one counter voice to what's going on with this pandemic on any of those method, on any of those technological. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for rescuing me, David. Platforms, yes, you can't. You can't get a contrary view there. Only what is sanctioned by the by the government or those ruling authorities on those platforms is allowed to be allowed to be projected. Look at it's. This, this indoctrination is happening in mass in our universities. In mass. And it's get on board or be ostracized. Look, at in, in universities, look, in the 70s, when you went to college, you went to Michigan State, there would be debate. There would be discussions about different things. It was free. It was open. No more. If you do not walk lockstep with what those professors want you to say, then you are ostracized. You are banished. That is what is happening in our universities today. The only way to thrive in this dark environment, folks, is to stay close to your power source. Stay close to Jesus, filled with the Spirit. Dwell in Christ. Make your home in Christ. It's not an option. If you're going to survive this thing and thrive, actually thrive, that is what we must do. Now, notice the, dis dis the distribution, <laughs> the disposition of these overcomers. Abject joy. Abject joy, verses 3 and 4. The song of Moses and the Lamb. These victors are singing a song of deliverance. Deliverance. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. 
even though, now watch this, even though they have been martyred, even though they have experienced atrocities beyond our wildest imaginations, they understand completely God's plan. They trusted the plan. Look, when you get to heaven, you're not going to go up there and make some sort of accusation to God or statement to God saying, why did you do this, God? And you're going to know why more of that just in a few minutes because you're going to see in a few minutes who God is and who we are. Okay? You will not do that. Why won't you do that? Because when you get there, you will know why all of this happened. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We will know instantly that everything that God does is righteous and just. He will never have to give an account of himself to us. Though we suffer for a brief time, we'll have joy for eternity. And Jason quoted this last week when he was doing his, his announcements. It's 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our temporal mess is light and momentary. Look at the awfulness of stuff does not seem light and momentary here. It seems like it's going on forever and ever, but it is light and momentary in the eyes of eternity. What does he say in, in these verses? Therefore, we do not lose heart. We don't become despondent. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary afflictions. The lispus, crushing, squeezings of life. Our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen. You want to be a victor here? You fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since, we, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Keep your focus on Christ. That's the only way you're going to be able to make it through. You must have an eternal perspective to thrive on earth. Remember, this is all temporary. And all I can say is, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Boom. I guess I should stop, okay? Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, hallelujah. Verse 4 says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord? Phobio, fear. Reverence for God. Awesome respect for God. But also could mean tremulous fear. But I think in context it's respect. Do you know that everything in creation will one day bow before the Lord Jesus? You know that, don't you? You know that because of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. We know that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven, on earth, under the earth. Everything will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, master, ruler, owner, to the glory of God the Father. Do you know who the, who's going to do that? Satan's going to do that. All of his fallen angels will do that. Stalin will do that. Hitler will do that. Everyone, Pol Pot, the Cambodian dictator that killed a million people in Cambodia. Everyone, every, every one of the earth dwellers, everyone has been in rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ will one day bow before him, acknowledging that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. For you alone are holy, God. There is none like you. Let me say that again. There is none like our God. These phony baloney gods that people worship, 
There's none like our God. We have no idea of the might and the majesty of our God. We have no idea of the holiness and the awesomeness of our God. We can't comprehend it here. We can't. We're too depraved. To be quite honest with you, we are too depraved to have any idea about the holiness and the awesomeness of God. That is just our state now. But we will one day. Verses 5 through 8, judgment is imminent for these people. After these things, metatauta, after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. There's action. Something big is about to happen. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chest girded with the golden bands. I think this is the holiness of God they're reflecting. Then one, they, oh, they look like priests. Then one of the four living creatures, a cherubim, a cherubim give, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God. Notice it's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. People don't want to acknowledge the wrath of God, but it's real. Who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Remember pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, smoke, clouds. And from his power, his dunamis power, and no one was able to enter the temple. The temple is closed till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. Did you get the picture here? The temple was open with these angels coming out with the bowls of wrath. And then God shuts the temple. No one else is able to get in here. More on that in just a second. Keep the picture. John sees action in the heavenly temple. Something big is about to happen. I can't say that loud enough. And Am I saying it loud enough? Loud enough, yes. After these things, he sees what's happening in the temple. Now look at the word temple is naos. Naos. Why am I saying naos? Because it narrows down all that temple area to the holy of holies. The place where God chose to manifest his presence within the temple. With the nation of Israel. He chose to manifest himself. Remember, God is omnipresent. Remember, the prefix omni means all. He is all present. Wherever you go, there is God. Solomon had a good view of this when he was commissioned to build the temple in 1 Kings 8.27. Notice what Solomon says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? This one that's all over? Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, God. Solomon had a picture of who God really is. How much less this temple which I have built. Look, at New Testament believers are special. You know that? You are special. Why are you special? Today, you are the temple of the living God. You are the naos of the living God. You are the holy of holies of the living God. He's chosen to dwell in you. This magnificent God chose to inhabit us as his holy place. Every true believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. 2 Corinthians 6.16 I will dwell in them and walk among them. Watch how personal it is. I will be their God. It's personal. It's personal. And they shall be my people. It's personal. You wonder why these guys could stand on that sea of glass? Because it's personal. He is your God. He loves you. He brings you into his presence. He brings you into his family. 
It's an amazing scene. They have these seven angels come out of the temple having the seven plagues. They've been in the very presence of God. And now each angel will personally deliver each one of these judgments. Again, they're, they're pure white, their holiness. They're reflecting the holiness of heaven. And the four living creatures, one of them is a cherubim, is going to give these, these bowls to these angels. You know what that tells me? That God is a God of order and structure. Do you know that in the angelic realm you have cherubim, seraphim, archangels, messenger angels, and a whole flurry of other angels that do the ministry of God? There is a hierarchy in order. There is a hierarchy in the courts of heaven. There's a hierarchy in God's church. He's raised up elders and deacons and that sort of thing. There's a hierarchy in the home where husbands, wives, children. That is how God has structured things. He's very ordered, very structurally. And things must be done His way. There is no freelancing. There is no freelancing. You just don't make things up as you go. What does that mean to me? You can't freelance on saying that a country saying that abortion is okay. When God says, you shall not kill. You don't freelance on that. How about same-sex marriage? God has ordained marriage very clearly between a man and a woman. And it is to be for life. Okay, that's, that's, that's his design. That's his design. Making some, because a government makes up gay marriage doesn't make it a marriage, at least in the eyes of God. It doesn't do that. Don't miss this point. The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God, the glory of God, and from his power, his dunamis power. God has all power, he's omnipotent, to assure the last judgment will be carried out. God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. God is omnipresent. He is all over the place. He is omniscient. He has all knowledge. All knowledge. Omni, all, everything. David speaks of the omnipresence of God. Watch what he says here. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? This is David speaking. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. Now look at the heavens, you are there. The vastness of space, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand is with me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's no place that you can go that God is not. He is present every place. Now we know that this universe is hundreds of thousands of light years big. I mean, I, it, might, it might be bigger than that. It might be, bi- I can't say a billion, but million. It is huge. It is huge. And you can get on a jet well, you can get on a Star Trek ship and go at warp speed and get out there thousands of light years, God. Thousands of light years more God. Hundred thousands of light years, God. He's no different there than he is right here. His presence is manifested all over. There's no height. There's no depth in, in the oceans or depth of anything. God. God is always, always, always all over the place. In his omnipotence, let A.W. Tozer help us with this. His, his power, his power, listen to this. Getting this out of his knowledge of the holy, quote, to reign, God must have power. And to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. Since he has at his command all the power of the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. Nothing is hard for him. 
All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. He never gets tired. He never gets tired. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. Folks, this omniscient God, all-knowing God, this omnipresent God that is all over the place, this omnipotent God that is all-powerful. You get the picture of this vastness of God. Think about this unimaginable thought. This God loves us. How could he do that? How could he love someone like us when he is so vast? There's no comparison that we have. It's like us loving an amoeba and dying for an amoeba. Put it under a microscope. There's little things floating around in there. Oh, yeah, I'm going to love these guys. and die. It's astounding what he does. God's love is off the charts. We can't imagine it. We can't imagine it. And then no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You know what this is suggesting to me? That this bold judgment situation is still a sad moment to God. The temple is closed. It's covered with a cloud. And there seems to be this, this grieving that's going on. The rebellion of humanity has reached a point where God now has to kill them all. And this is extremely, it looks like it's, 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 it's grieving to God. God's creation must be destroyed. And remember, God has feelings. It's the reason we have feelings. We're made in the imago Dei, the image of God. We have feelings. We have emotions. God has emotions. When the final judgments begin to fall in the last days, the grace of God will be withdrawn and no prayer for mercy will be accepted. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. That is a sobering, sobering thought. As we close, God's final wrath. Where have we been? We know this. Jesus will return to this earth. Now, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever trib you are, Jesus is coming. And you believe that. You're orthodox. You're in the church. Jesus will return to this earth. He will take back what rightly belongs to him. That's the kingdoms of this world. Remember 1115? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign, how long? Forever, forever, forever. Recall, Satan through deception stole temporary rulership of the world kingdoms. Remember how it happened. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden. No sin nature. Perfect. Made in the perfect image of God. They were, they were the perfect status of an image bearer of God. They, and actually, this actually put them higher than the angelic realm. You think this might have made Satan a little ticked off? Could be. Just a thought. Could be. Adam, we, we do know this. Adam was given what is called theocratic authority. I should have written it on the screen, but I was running out of space. So, Theocratic authority. What does that mean? Adam's theocratic authority is this, God's ruling representative on earth. That's what a theocratic authority is. Angels don't have that. Angels are ministering spirits. Angels don't have ruling authority. Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve's mandate was this. Fill the earth 
and subdue it. Means bring it into subjection. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That dominion is the word rada. R-A-D-A-H. And it means to rule or to reign. That was Adam and Eve's mandate. To reign over this earth as God's representative. As God's representative, they were to rule and have dominion. What does Satan do? He conspires to take what Adam and Eve have been given. And through deception, he entices Eve, and Adam goes right along with the program, and the fall of man happens. One sin. One sin. One little bitty sin was huge. And it resulted in death. Satan, you can call him the great murderer. Whenever you see someone die, think of Satan. Think of the murderer who brought sin and death into this world. The death curse was placed upon all mankind. And the great murderer is responsible for literally billions of people dying physically and spiritually. Now, you don't have to die spiritually. You will die physically. All of us is going to make that journey. You know, Methuselah lived how long? 969 years. And what did it say? He died. Noah lived 950 years and then he died. Enoch lived 350. He was translated. (laughs) There's still some of us that are going to make it out of here without dying, yes. But you don't have to experience spiritual death because you can have spiritual eternal life by receiving the gift of salvation that is so freely offered. You don't have to die the second death. God's plan to redeem what was lost to save mankind was known from eternity past. God was not shocked at the fall of man. Do you think that God is in the garden watching Adam and Eve and he's going, oh goodness, don't don't fall for that. (laughs) Biting his name. No. No. He knew exactly what free will meant. He knew the freedom to make a choice included the freedom to make a bad choice. That's what that ended up being. Remember this. Adam was the only perfect son of God. Only another sinless son could redeem mankind. And that is not Mohammed. That is not Buddha. That is not Brahma. That is not any of the Hindu, the thousands of Hindu gods. It is one God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin curse was passed upon every human. And the last Adam, it says in 2 Corinthians 15, 14, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, as mankind's kinsman redeemer, paid the price for us. His life for our life. His life for our life. And all you have to do is believe and receive the gift. Only Jesus could take the scroll, the deed to earth, the last will and testament to earth, and loose the seven seals. Only Jesus can take back what Adam lost. Now can you see why Christianity is the only true world religion. All the other ones are false, and that is not popular today. That is not popular. It'll get you kicked off in a corner in your, on your college campus. People will spurn you at your work, but we have to tell people the truth. Only Christianity has a living Savior. And what we're seeing today is the preparation to take back these world kingdoms. Remember, God does not do things randomly. He's very structured. His plan is perfect. 
His timing is perfect, and it will be executed perfectly. This is a somber moment in heaven. The temple is filled with smoke, and it seems to me that there's, a, there's an element of mourning here of what go, what's going to happen to planet Earth. Remember God's heart, folks. If you don't remember anything else, remember the heart of God for people is that they turn and live. The writer to the Hebrews put it clearly in 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice and you're lost and you don't know Jesus Christ, salvation is an act of God working in you. You don't choose the time. God chooses the time. He opens your heart. He opens your mind. He softens your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion when they went into 40 years in the wilderness. Two key questions every person must answer. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's question number one. This was spoken by Jesus to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi when he's looking at this mountainside, he had all these demon gods carved into the mountainside. Jesus points at them and he points at his disciples who do men say that I am? And, Jesus, and, and Peter says, well, the, the group says, you know, a prophet, some say Elijah, some say Moses or one of the prophets, but Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Pointing at the group. And then Peter just bursts forward, oh, you are the son of God. You are the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Remember, Father has to open your eyes. A lot of people believe that Jesus is a great prophet. A lot of people say he's a good teacher. You look at all world religions, they extol Jesus as a prophet or a teacher or a great leader, a good person to kind of emulate or be like. But they don't look at him as the son of God. They do not. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's number one. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Number two, this is Pilate addressing the rabid crowd after Jesus has been scourged, Jesus has had a crown of thorns on him, Jesus' visage, his appearance, looked more brutalized than any human, it says in Isaiah 52. And he brings him out to the crowd, and he asks this question, what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That's a question for everybody. Who do you say that I am, and what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Every non-believer today, that is listening to this, you can settle that in your heart right now. And I urge you, this could be the day of salvation for you. And if you are a believer, I would suggest to you, if you're half in, kind of that little waffly Christian, so easily distracted by the world, and often doing your thing here, hey, God gave his best, you give your best. That is what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. I owe Jesus my best because Jesus is the best gift that God could give. The giving God gave his best. He gave his son. And it's amazing that his son would love someone like me. I have to be honest with you. I mean, it's astounding to me that God loves me. It's mind-blowing. Jesus came. Jesus actually came to this earth, this sin-laden earth, he lived and experienced life just like us. Jesus experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of life much more than any of us. He was in all ways tempted like us, but to the nth degree. We can't even come close to experience the temptations that he felt. And Jesus knows what it's like to live here. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted, to be hungry, to be tired, to be abandoned, to die, to be disowned by his family, disowned by his brothers and sisters. They thought he was crazy. But you know what? Jesus knows the feeling of being abandoned by God. The fourth cry from the cross was Jesus exclaiming, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all the sins of the world are placed upon Jesus, the world becomes dark. God sheltering the world from seeing the sins of of the world placed upon on His Son. And Jesus feeling this desperation of the sins of the world on Him and feeling like He can no longer have contact with His Father. He experienced that. We can't even imagine that. There is no greater friend than Jesus. And your friend will never leave you nor forsake you. You can count on that. Remember Hebrews 13, 5? Five times in the Greek. It's never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you for emphasis. And I would suggest to you this. He is with you through all of life, even to the end. When you get to that point like my dad was, you want to know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's not time for lukewarm Christianity, toe-in Christianity. That's immersed in Christianity time. Spend time with your friend and bring him your best. He deserves it. And I would say for all of eternity, you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. And we are eternally grateful for the inerrant, infallible word of God. And Lord, I also thank you that even in these chapters of Revelation that are so difficult, so, uh, so many people are dying and there's so much destruction going on, it's just grievous that there's hope that you give. All of these judgments are, are, are designed that people turn and live. That we live all out for you. That we place you as number one in our lives. Not number ten. Not way down the scale. But number one in our lives. May we commit to that today. That we'll be fervent followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are teaching us things that we need to know today on how to survive the coming persecution. Thank you that you are our refuge, you are our strength, you are an ever-present help of times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, the oceans roar and foam, we will not fear because our God will hold us up. Thank you that you give us strength to the end. Thank you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.